0: Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are hosts Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about our show, please go to our Facebook page at the wonderful world of wine. Hello again, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Good to see you again, Kim. How are you, Mark? I'm great. I'm Good. excited to talk more wine topics with our listeners today. The first topic we have is from Forbes magazine, and it was Are U.S. wine consumers lazy, and it's based on Australian wines.
1: Right. So lazy when it comes to Australian wines. And I really, I liked this article, the author, she's a great writer. And it really put a point on the fact that Australian wine is sort of having an identity crisis. And when a lot of Australian wines first hit the US market about 20 years ago, they fell into this category that came to be called critter wines. So they were inexpensive, kind of bulk produced wines that all had like a fancy little critter on it, whether it was a kangaroo or a koala bear or a wallaby or, you know, lizards and geckos and all sorts of crazy things. And it, it really sort of put, I think, a damper on this perception that Australian wine's can also be really good quality because we had all of this mass-produced, bulk, inexpensive stuff coming out of Australia, and a lot of consumers felt that that's all that there was.
0: Yeah, and these critter wines, you're saying, Kim, were mass-produced wines that really overshadowed the smaller quality wines coming from Australia. So consumers, for some reason, they're saying we're not keeping up with what's going on in Australia. But I liked how they said it's not just the consumers fall, the wine buyers fall. It starts at all different levels right. that people are not maybe educating about the wine. So that's why people are not following it.
1: Right. So consumers are just. You know, the, if you're picking up a bottle of wine from a store or, or you're drinking it at a restaurant, you're at the end of the chain. You know, there are a number of steps before that wine gets to you. And at every step, somebody has to be making a decision of, do we bring in this wine? Do we sell this wine? Do we provide this wine? Do we do we make this wine available? So there does seem to be, like you said, there's enough blame to go around about why U.S. consumers just either aren't interested in or don't have access to um i would you know more middle middle range australian wines and, and I, I think it also needs to be brought up that in addition to the critter wines there was also this category of like super high-end luxury australian wines and they what I felt about them was after being exposed to numerous bottles in this category, I I just found that it was a style that I didn't really prefer to drink because they were so over the top, like big fruit and high alcohol. And whether this was just a style that came about because of the heat of Australian summers or because winemakers were trying to make them in a certain style to appeal to critics. I'm not really sure where that falls, but there were kind of like two ends of a spectrum. You either have the really low end stuff that's all mass produced, or you have these super high end reds that are over $100 a bottle and are at like 16, 17% alcohol that I honestly just didn't find very pleasant to drink.
0: Geez, I have so much to follow up with on that. Ooh-hoo. So many things. First off, years ago, What would you say, other than the mass-marketed Australian, what was the most popular varietal for Australia? Shiraz. Shiraz. You would see Shiraz from Australia, Barossa, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And as a retailer, I can tell you right now, I might have had a whole rack of Australian wines. Now I have very few. And I
1: don't think you're alone in that. That seems to have been like a category that really took a hit kind of across the board for retailers. So it's not just like you have chosen not to bring in Australian wines. This is this is a real trend.
0: And I think that's the same on restaurant wine lists. Are so you going to a restaurant? How many Australian wines do you see? How many Shiraz do you see on a list nowadays?
1: Yeah, you're lucky if you see like two.
0: So this gets back to where you started saying, what are people showing? So as a retailer, people are coming in trying to sell me wine. I can tell you in a year, very few Australian that coming in with very few Australian Mm -hmm. wines to try. And even less consumers are asking me for Australian wines. And like you said, Kim, the wines that the distributors are showing are the high-end wine. And they're very hard to sell to people if consumers are used to the mass-marketed wines. Right. So that is hurting it. They did mention a list of what consumers want and how everything on that list, the Australian wines, satisfy. Did you did you see that? Right.
1: So that there are wines available that are being made and are being produced that do fit the categories of wines that people are looking for. They're not all these gigantic high alcohol fruit bombs. There are good examples being made in Australia. But what she's saying in in this article is that we're lazy because it's hard for consumers to change their opinions about what they perceive as a certain category or that all Australian wines must be like this. And it's it's hard to change those opinions on such a large scale.
0: Yes. So she listed four things consumers want and they look at as far as what is hip in wine, what's The tradition and the history is, the stories behind it, and the whole experience in in wine country. Mm -hmm. And Australian wines have all of this. But like you said, Kim, people just won't research it or won't taste it. So what else can they do? I know I get a lot of surveys asking, you know, what's on my shelves? And they ask Australian stuff all the time. And they break it down by how many from this region, this region. You're lucky if you have one from Australia in general nowadays.
1: I don't think that consumers are up enough on, honestly, the different regions of Australia. So whether you have something from Barossa or you have something from Margaret River or you have something from McLaren Vale, I don't think that people know that there even is a difference you know you see the country and you see the grape variety and and it's kind of yeah i think ingrained in people's imagination what these wines must already be about so it's more i think changing changing opinions about styles and changing opinions about quality
0: and it's funny because in the in the wine world the australian winemakers are always looking at trends that recently they were getting in trouble because they wanted to start making prosecco Mm -hmm. and the italians are saying you know no 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 and there, there was another i'm trying to think I think it was another Italian thing they were trying to make and market. Was this
1: a Nero Diabola thing?
0: I think so. It yeah. was another, they don't like the Italians for some reason, I guess,
1: <laughs> Or they really do like the yeah, Italians, but and that's looking, what their problem is.
0: Right, they're looking at trends, they're, they're following what consumers want and trying to get them in, involved to, to buy their wines, but the U.S. is just, it's not following it.
1: So I think it comes down to education. How did American consumers get on board with any number of categories that they never were used to drinking before? Like Spanish wine. Or Australian wine when it first came on the market or New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc like 30 years ago there was no such thing as this market this category of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc but then it started and now we have it so I think a lot of it does sort of need to start with the importers and the suppliers and getting people excited about the category and getting consumers informed it's not all just yellowtail
0: Yeah, I was thinking you said that about education Kim I was thinking I can't remember the last time we talked about say Australian wine labels no regions but I I know I worked in a few Shiraz and a couple of tastings yeah I've used
1: a few I think I think I've actually used more Australian Cabernet in my tastings than I have Australian Shirazs so
0: I guess we're not really helping the maybe whole we need all right we need to help. Either, right? we need
1: to help and uh, improve the image of Australian wines because there are a lot that are very good that are in a, a decent price point you know in that kind of sweet spot that I feel of like 15 to 25 dollars a bottle Retail that are you know reds and whites and are fruity and are fun and are somewhat serious and and really can fit in with everyday wine drinking for a lot of people. So maybe we need to uh, yeah, we're lazy. put a little more effort. We're, lazy. we're those lazy, we're lazy consumers. And we
0: actually we we have to share the story with the listeners. But the the woman we both follow this woman that wrote this article and we were so lazy we couldn't figure out how to say it. Her last name. I tried. Name, right? I tried to so find out want how to, to pronounce it. her last
1: name. <laughs> You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim, and you can find us online at franklinliquors.com for Mark and vinitaswineworks.com for myself. And now we want to talk about a topic that I often get asked about from consumers who are either just starting to drink wine or have uh, discovered a certain category but want to branch into other categories. And this is uh, red wines for the white wine drinker. And I do see this a lot in the summertime, but also around the holidays because people are going to parties and they want to know what to bring as either a guest, a hostess gift, and there's a lot of wine around and, and they want to know, like, okay, if I'm faced with the idea of drinking this red wine, even though I'm not much of a red wine drinker, which do you think I will like?
0: Yeah, what do you think, Kim, when you see when we do events, do you see a big separation between, you know, the people only like red, only like white, or the like necess- geeky like, I don't see many geeks like that, like everything, right? I don't necessarily
1: right? see it in our events or in our classes, and even in my My private tastings that I do, I think if people are open-minded enough to want to take a class about wine, even if the wines in front of them don't necessarily fall into the category of their favorites, they're still willing to try them, which I think is great because it's a wonderful way to find new things that you wouldn't ordinarily have picked up so where i see this is more in casual wine drinkers at family parties or other kinds of parties where people are like oh no no no, i only drink red or no no no, i only drink white and i don't know if it's for show or (laughs) or what but i do find that our um our students do tend to be of the open-minded sort which i think is great
0: Yeah, years ago they said the consumers were 70 percent white 30 percent red drinkers now it's 70 percent red 30 percent white yeah and mm-hmm. I think it's even probably lower white as far as what, what I, I'm i seeing retail side.
1: Yeah, I feel like we did sort of see a shift from white wine drinking to red wine drinking. But that's over the course of a, of a long period of time. So I do have a lot of people who are red wine drinkers. And when I do big events, like 75 or 100 people, I usually will make sure that I have more red on hand than white because that does seem to be the category that uh, gets gets more consumed.
0: So in this article, Kim, they mentioned two good, what I thought were good points of why it's hard to con- A white drinker to red And one of them was The white wine drinkers Like to drink their wines cool And they also The white wines have a different Mouthfeel or texture As we talked about in the
1: past I loved that they Talked about temperature Because I feel like That's not actually something That we talk about all that often And we talk about how White wines should be drunk At a certain temperature Because of this And red wines should be drunk At another temperature Because of this But it doesn't really play Into our idea of Well maybe you like it more because it's cold but i think that that was a really really valid point that maybe some white wine drinkers are just cold beverage people and the idea of drinking something at room temperature just doesn't work for them and i had never thought of that before so this this really sort of opened my eyes to that
0: yeah and i would have loved to have seen some sort of stat that says people are red wine drinkers but they're seasonal white wine drinkers mm-hmm. you know what i mean so i can see drinking because of the heat you want something cool yeah. you you go to white but are you really a red drinker so there's At not least, much I kind stats. of feel like
1: we see the opposite We're, you know people maybe are white wine drinkers but in the winter time
0: so they're going the other they're way. going the other direction yeah.
1: you know they're like oh yeah you know a nice glass of red wine in the winter time when you're eating heartier food or you're so in theory by fire, the percentage so, should be 50-50 it should be <laughs> <But> why <laughs> maybe if I only ask in the summer you have more white wine drinkers they only ask in the winter you have more red wine drinkers I don't know and it, maybe a lot of it is people's perceptions of themselves too like we don't really tend to track how, and I don't I certainly don't do this to myself you know I tend to describe myself as I drink more whites and rosés than I drink reds but I've never taken a poll of myself you know checked off a little chart and you know yeah. this is when I drink red and this is when I drink white so it could just be that I perceive myself to be a white wine drinker but I could be drinking more red than I think I am so I, I don't know.
0: It's funny you said that because I have I track all my wine tastings in an app and by far I taste every year more reds than whites and that's what the people are bringing to me to bring bring up one on my shelf. Right. So if I'm not tasting a lot of whites, chances are they're not getting on my right. shelves for you to buy them. And
1: you might not be tasting those because it's what you prefer to drink. You're tasting those because you need to figure out what is going to work best in your store. So it's not what you're drinking when you go home at night.
0: Right. I, I need right. to find things that people ask me for as well. So it's tough. Exactly. Let's talk about All the right, next so but, thing yeah, they, they, they <laughs> mentioned was the reds also have a different mouthfeel right. than a white. So the white drinker might not like that texture or the bitterness of a red wine Mm -hmm.
1: and we talked about this when we when we talked about uh, textures versus flavors and we do this every once in a while red wines have a component called tannins to them which in addition to making your mouth feel a little fuzzy or sometimes we'll use the word silky or velvety but there's there's a texture in there because of those tannins which sometimes can taste a little bitter to people and i think that that is a flavor that some people can get used to and eventually really enjoy but that other people it's it's way too off-putting for them.
0: Yeah, I like to think of it as like mouth dry, drying, yeah, drying versus mouth watering right. type texture.
1: Right, and then know. white wines generally tend to be on the opposite end of that spectrum. So you have more acidity, and acid's not a bad word, for white wines, which make your mouth water. So it really is kind of two sides of the same wine coin where whites make your mouth water and reds kind of dry you out. I, I like that. So they I'm mentioned that.
0: six best wines to convert someone from white to red. And I think this is good for someone who comes to us and says, right away you put a... Uh, Red wine, for them to say, I'm not a red wine drinker. So this is a guide just for that person to say, this is what you should really try. Right. And I agree with a lot of them. They started out with saying Pinot Noir is the first thing to try,
1: and Pinot's the classic recommendation because it is on the lighter end of the red wine spectrum, and a lot of New World versions, so think California, don't have necessarily a lot of tannins to them, and have a lot of nice fruity flavors. So they can be a very nice introduction to the white wine drinker who wants to try some red. Because they don't they have more of that acid, they don't necessarily feel super drying in your mouth and a lot of them are, are quite yummy.
0: Yeah, I like the recommendation about cool climate Pinot Wise because those are the absolute lightest mm-hmm. red you're gonna find. You can basically see through these these wines. They're almost rosé style. So that is a great starting point to get them into the red grape without that body. It's the lightest style you can can get. The second grape they mentioned was the Gamay grape. Kim, and we also love to recommend this. A little bit more fruit maybe than Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. Weight is approximately the same.
1: This is where I usually start for recommending a red wine to white wine drinkers who want to branch out. Sometimes I will recommend that they start with Pinot Noir, but I usually go with Gamay because of the fruitiness factor. So the flavor of Gamay's tend to be more like fruit punch. Sometimes for the Beaujolais Nouveau, it's almost got more of like a bubblegum, banana kind of a flavor to it. So I think because I find the fruity style to be more approachable for people who don't necessarily have a lot of experience with reds, this is where I I generally tend to start.
0: I agree. I agree with that. All right. And the next three were all Italian grapes, Kim, that they recommended and a couple surprises maybe Mm. to me. Barbera from the Piedmont region was on the list and they're saying because it has the same acid maybe as whites. I don't acid. I don't
1: agree with this recommendation at all. I actually find for myself that Barbera is relatively heavy. tannic. A little heavy and too, pretty no? pretty heavy and a lot of them tend to have what I call like a, like an earthy kind of a factor to it. So there's savory notes of like herbs and earth and sometimes a little gaminess. I think if you are a white wine drinker who is not used to those sorts of flavors that they kind of smell and taste a a little off-putting. Yeah. So yeah, Barbera I mean, I would never think of Barbera as like a hey, intro to red wine kind of kind of red.
0: You can get some that have great cherry fruit, but then again, you can get some that are just dirt. Yeah. Right. And I think I mean, that there's two. That would I turn, think I turn I found people too off. too
1: tannic. Yeah, too tannic and too dry. And if yeah, you that, get that earthiness. earthy
0: style. And they try it, they'll probably never try another red. red. You know. So that's sad. The next grape they talked about was Scavia. Do I say it right, Kim? Schiava. Schiava. My Italian. I'm working on it. Kid.
1: And I agree with this one because I find that a lot of Schiavas from the northern part of Italy, and actually they make some really good ones in the Finger Lakes of New York as well, is more akin to Pinot Noir. So the fruit is a little bit lighter. They're still dry, and but they stay, they're not quite as tannic as those Barberas. So a lot of them are, are so light that you can see through them. They tend to be refreshing, which is I think what they were trying to go for with the Barbera, with the high acid. So because they come from a cooler climate, they're more similar to those cooler climate Pinot Noirs that you were just talking about. Talking
0: about Yeah, not only cooler climate, but the Alto Adige region in right. Italy, way up northeast, and it's mountain fruit, right. so it's it's high altitude, and it's light. Great. I, I love this varietal. Yeah, it's I do very too. misunderstood, yeah. but it's very great. And
1: there's not too much of it out there, so it does take a little bit of a search, but when you find them, they're really quite good.
0: The next Italian grape they talked about or style was Lambrusco, Yeah, which to me, the same you felt about the Barbera, Kim. I felt that about oh, Lambrusco. Oh, really? Because there are so many different versions, and it's not the same grape as many people think, so it can be very what I call foxy. Mm. You can get some versions that are fizzy. There are some great fruity versions. I think it's coming back in style. Great food wine. See, I don't think
1: I've ever met a Lambrusco I haven't liked. Not (laughs) that really like like. foxy
0: style. Like I don't care.
1: I like them all. Like really fruity, foxy. When we talk about foxy, it's like think think back to if you've ever had Manischewitz. It's which is Concord grapes, Concord. Grapes have what people describe as foxy, but it's grapey. It's like grapey, grapey. It's like grape juice.
0: Some are grapey. Some can be very funky style. Funky, yeah. And you know, to me, once again, if the white wine drinker gets that wrong style, I think it can turn them off. But great wines from the Emilia region of Italy,
1: and also if you get those dry sparkling. Lambruscos. It's a little tough I think to wrap your palate around a sparkling wine that is red that doesn't have any sweetness to it. And there are sparkling Shirazs from Australia and there are these sparkling Lambruscos that are bone dry. So, you know, the idea of like Merlot with bubbles in it, you know, it it's it's a little head scratching. It's a it's a different type of wine that maybe is wine 201 and not wine 101 if you're just learning to experience red wines. So I, I can I can see your uh your issues with well, Lambrusco. I w- if
0: the way I would convert a white wine drinker to this red wine is with food. A nice antipasto, mm-hmm. have some lambrusco. Oh, yeah. Lambrusco and sausages is great. But other than that, be careful. And the last grape they said to convert a white wine drinker to red was Zinfandel. And I thought this was a stretch.
1: I th- I think what they're going for here is that Zins tend to be pretty fruity. So yes it's a big red and And some of them can have a lot of tannins. And some of the higher end ones do have more complex flavors, more spice to them, less jam, jammy kind of fruits and more like more of a serious wine. But I buy this one. I would, um, for for people who are learning to drink red wines and want to experience something a little heavier, I think Zin is a good way to go because of that really luscious fruit flavor to them.
0: Yeah, they were saying the the Chardonnay drinker, that's the heavy body white Chardonnay would like this because of the body, the weight. I, I just think be careful because like you said, Kim, there's the fruity Zinfandel and there's the maybe smoky, earthy Zinfandel that I think once again can throw throw you and off. And I think
1: for people, this kind of can come down to price point too. So usually those funkier, smokier, like you were just saying, more serious Zinfandels are going to come with a higher price tag. So if you see a Zin that's $25 and up, it's going to probably be one of those more serious ones. And then if you see like a $10 or a $12. Those are going to be more that fruitier, easier to wrap your head around styles of Zin.
0: So Kim, they mentioned the heavy white wine drink and converting to red. What would you recommend if the person is a oaky white wine fan of like you know higher end chardonnays that are really oak no mm. fruit you are just tasting that oak that creaminess what red would you go to
1: I might go to some of those california blends that tend to have a lot of oak to them so maybe merlot predominant or even cabernet predominant um, it might not necessarily be all about the tannins there are a lot of reds out there that have a very noticeable oak component and sometimes you can even tell that from the label like we talk talk a lot about if, if it references the barrel on the label, then chances are you're going to get one of those oakier, more creamy, more vanilla, coconutty, nutty kinds of things. So like those bourbon barrel wines that we talk about. But I would be perfectly comfortable recommending one of these Zins to someone who likes those big oaky whites as well. Yeah, so less tannins. Yeah. Yeah, more smooth. More, more Kind of smooth, but, from the but oak. oak smooth. Maybe yeah. aged
0: more, you think? Not necessarily, because
1: no? I feel for aged wines, they kind of lose the fruit a little bit and... What I would be looking for would be that, that big fruity flavor in addition to that oak for them.
0: So someday I'll, I'll ask Kim a question and she'll stomp her something. Oh, I, you, know, I someday, feel like he's stomping. <laughs> I'll edit out the hesitation <laughs> to make it look better.
1: Or you can add in some hesitation. <laughs>
0: Thank you for exploring all things wine with us today. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow our show, please check out Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, Kim, we're going to talk about an article in Business Insider, why sparkling wines make you feel more drunk than regular wines. And you always get this little sparkle when we talk
1: Bubbly. <laughs> you know I love my bubbles so I You must be drunk cool. all the time no. according to this article mm, Not today <laughs> um, Yeah so why do bubbly wines Make you feel a little bit More drunk than, than still wines And there were some experiments that were done To see if in fact the blood Alcohol content of folks After they drank sparkling wine As opposed to still wine was higher And indeed it was so it's not just A feeling a, a, maybe A placebo effect that when You drink sparkling wine you feel like you Celebrating something, and so then you feel a little more giddy or lightheaded. No, it actually turns out that sparkling wine enters your bloodstream at a quicker rate than still wine.
0: I thought it was interesting, Kim. They did do scientific tests where yes. they gave people still wine, gave, gave people sparkling wine, they took their blood alcohol level, and they're like, wow, wh- right. why is this? And right? they
1: used the same wine. So they used freshly opened bottles of champagne and then the same type of champagne, but they had stirred it up uh, to get rid of all the bubbles. And then use the two of those as their comparisons.
0: So the the other thing I thought was funny in this Kim was the same. Uh, I don't know if you want to say chemical, like CO two, whatever yeah, is carbon in, dioxide, what, whatever is in uh, the sparkling wine is also in mineral water, right? So it's so the bubbles. So bubbles, it's the bubbles, it has the same effect, mm-hmm. but without the
1: alcohol, correct? Right. So it's carbon dioxide bubbles, which when they are dissolved in a liquid, it actually increases the acidity of the liquid. So it's it's carbonic acid, um, which, is, which is what creates the bubbles in sparkling wine. And what this article says was that the bubbles themselves, the carbonic acid bubbles themselves, increase the permeability of your body. So when you have wine with bubbles in your mouth, or in your stomach or you've started to digest them and you're, they're in your intestines, they get through into your bloodstream, literally into your bloodstream faster because of those bubbles. So that is why you get a little drunker a little quicker on bubbly wine because it is entering your bloodstream at a faster rate.
0: And every time can we do events with sparkling wine, we always talk about two things we, we say to people. Number one is when you open it, try to have just a little bit of pop to keep that combination in. And we always say use a... A glass where you can contain and keep the bubbles. So mm-hmm. we're actually going against what they're saying in here because <laughs> they want you to get rid of those bubbles. Well, they... well, the
1: whole point of sparkling wine is the bubbles.
0: Well, not if you don't, you know, if you want to get drunk, you keep. You, you have oh, to, well. you know, keep the bubbles. But well, they, the my, effect... my
1: counter argument to that would be have some food in your stomach first. So we do tend to, I think, especially in celebratory settings, get into a party or, you know, the reception of a wedding or whatever. And the first thing you're handed is a glass of sparkling wine, even before you've had any food. So my it's- idea for people would be eat a little something first because the food in your stomach is going to counteract it getting the alcohol getting into your system too fast.
0: Yeah, they said nothing about they food. They didn't say they, anything they, they about food in this. They recommend just to soften the effect you use a coupe glass instead of a flute glass. So you're not narrowing. If you narrow that diameter of the glass, then you the bubbles will keep longer. So. But I think
1: that defeats the point of having sparkling wine. The whole yeah. point of it is that you want the bubbles. That's like telling someone, okay, well, your martini has more alcohol in it than my glass of Chardonnay. So you should be drinking the Chardonnay instead of the martini because it has less alcohol.
0: I wonder what, when you talk inexpensive sparkling wines where they're artificially adding carbonation, hmm. is that where the bubble is bigger? Because- right. 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 Is that worse to get you drunk? Because I don't know. it's a bigger bubble? But those I know if I drink an inexpensive sparkling, I'm hurting the next day versus <laughs> that's a true. fine champagne. So yeah. I wondered how that affects I wish they would have done that. That's a
1: really interesting point. I hadn't I hadn't considered that. Like when it's a carbonated as opposed to a naturally occurring sparkle. To maybe your wine. if
0: there's there's if it's finer bubbles, they say there's more. So maybe that's worse right. than a maybe. few big bubbles. Right.
1: That's what I was thinking, because say you have a bottle of of very inexpensive sparkling wine where they've carbonated it like it was coca-cola those bubbles don't last very long whereas if you have a glass of nice champagne you know the bubbles in that glass are going to be what we call persistent so that they stick around a little bit longer in your glass Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We have been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. Please visit us at our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine or listen to previous podcasts over at iTunes. Thank you.